Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 6, I'm going to be reading verses 30 through 44. This dovetails nicely for, with the sermon that you heard, again, from Mark's Gospel last Lord's Day morning. It's a story that we know, we've heard uh, since we were children, likely, but one that is full, it's rich, uh, with tremendous biblical and theological themes that present to us this compassionate shepherd. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 30, reading through verse 44, this is the word of the living God. Let's give attention to it uh, this morning. Mark 6, beginning with verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something... I'm sorry. Yes. Verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Amen. Let's pause and ask for God's help as we consider this portion of his word together this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, we do so with fear and reverence, knowing that it sits above us, it sits in judgment over us. And we pray that as we consider this story, this event that took place in the ministry of your son, that we would see it again for the first time, and we would behold something of your your son and our Savior. Grant us your spirit. You've promised to do that. May you do so for the glory of your name and the good of your church, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. It was Dr. Andrew Bonar who tells the story how in the highlands of Scotland, a sheep would often wander off into the rocks and get into places they couldn't get out of. The grass on these mountains is very sweet, and the sheep like it, and they will jump down 10 or 12 feet to the point in which they can't jump back again, and the shepherd then would hear them bleeding in distress. They may be there for days until they have eaten all the grass. The shepherd would often wait until they are so faint that they cannot stand, 
and then they will put a rope around them and he will go around him and he will go over and pull that sheep up out of the jaws of death. You might be asking, why don't they just go down there when the sheep first gets there? Dr. Bonar responded, they're so very foolish that they would dash right over the precipice and be killed if they did. And that is the way with men. They won't go back to God till they have no friends and have lost everything. If you are a wanderer, I tell you that the Good Shepherd will bring you back the moment you have given up trying to save yourself and are willing to let him save you his own way. The story, of course, being told by Dr. Bonar, a Puritan minister of the gospel, uh, highlights very much for us the message of this story that we have known and could recite and tell, the facts of it at least, uh, as given to us, recorded to us, uh, recorded for us in Mark's gospel in this very chapter, this sixth chapter. But what we must understand and we must consider as we do consider this event that happened in the life of Christ and his disciples is that the story wasn't just given us to us that we might have something to say to children in a Sunday school class. No, it was given to us to point us to the reality that our good shepherd, that we have a good shepherd, and that good shepherd is indeed uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And how he demonstrates it to us here in this narrative, in these events that take place here in this chapter. Now as we consider it, we must begin, and we should begin, with some basic questions. First, do you really, do you drink deeply from the reality that I've just presented? Do you drink deeply from the reality that Jesus Christ is indeed the Good Shepherd and that he did not leave you alone to wander in your own way. So easy to forget, isn't it, that that is a truth that just uh, underscores our lives, whether we're conscious of that fact or, or not. He does that, of course, in very tangible ways, as he does here in this sixth chapter. He does, again, for us here in the church, he does that through these ordinary means that he's given the church, those things that perhaps other churches look down on or, or sideline or, or, uh, or use per, per, per chance, but it's not central to that which they hold to and, and love, and that is the means of grace that in the three years I've been here, I've tried to show you the glory and the beauty of those things, the means of grace, the very preaching of the Word of God, the teaching of it, and the very officers of the church, the sacraments and prayer, all of these things are designed by the good shepherd of the sheep to, to feed us, to sustain us, to, to, as the text tells us, to satisfy our propensity, our souls that are, that are prone to wandering. Now, the context here as this event takes place in this chapter is that the disciples, they've just returned, the apostles, as mentioned in verse 30, they have just returned from the mission that Jesus gave to them, beginning in verse 7, in which he sends out the 12 apostles that they might go two by two, that they might teach, they might preach, they might advance the very kingdom of God uh, to others in that area. They have returned now, and as we know, they're tired. I can attest to the fact that that itself is an exhausting enterprise. 
not going out into the towns around Evansville so much, but just merely standing here each Lord's Day and proclaiming the gospel to God's people is indeed an exhausting thing. And so Jesus wisely, knowing these things, calls his disciples apart. He wants them to rest. He wants them to find respite for the very ener- for, because of the very energies they have expended, however long that was, uh, to advance the very kingdom of God. And there, of course, he shows even his compassion to his 12, to these men that he sent out. And so this morning, with God's help, and very much depending on it, uh, I, want you to sh- I want to show you that our shepherd is indeed compassionate by offering us rest, instruction, and feeding. I want to show you that this narrative, is, is known as it is to us, the Spirit really wants us to see us see more than just the miracle. It's important, of course, but that's not the central issue in the narrative. He wants us to see, and I'm going to show you, that our shepherd is indeed compassionate by offering us rest, instruction, and feeding. Three points as we consider uh, this passage this morning. First, we're going to see the compassion of Christ by offering rest, Then we will see the compassion of Christ by offering teaching. And then, finally, the compassion of Christ in his offering of feeding. Let's first consider the compassion of Christ and how he offers rest to his people. Not just the people here in this narrative, the the immediate context, but that which he offers to you and to me all the time. And more to the point on the Lord's Day itself. We have first the report of the twelve. In verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and all that they had taught. Now, this narrative, as I've mentioned already, begins in verse 7 of the chapter, where Jesus sends out the twelve to preach repentance to the people. They have now come back from their labors. They are much like in very clearly connected with the very events of the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 to 33. There, you note, if you remember, if you are a a good student of God's Word, you should know automatically that Numbers 13 is the event in which um, Moses sends the 12 spies into the land. What were they to do? They were to go in there. They were to evaluate. They were to see what was taking place, and what kind of enemy is before them. And they are to do so not because there was any reason to come back and say or report back to Moses that there's anything to fear, but to see and behold that which God would do for them and how he would prosper their labor as they would go into the land. In much the same way, Jesus takes from that example of the Old Testament, sending these 12 apostles the, uh, in the company of men and other accounts, 70 men, uh, to do the very work of advancing the very kingdom and the glory of God uh, into the land in which he was ministering. But as he hears this report, Notice that Jesus does not heap upon them more work to do. He gives to them and he commands to them, verse 31, he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. 
It's a command. He is not suggesting that they need to rest. He is telling them to rest. This is a lesson, I think, and I've used this passage as I've given charges to new ministers of the gospel, that there are going to be times in their ministry because the ministry, and frankly, as I say this, I don't expect you to understand it, but I will say it plainly, that the ministry is, is hard. It's hard on the soul, it's hard on the mind, it's hard on the body. And as I've charged other men who've been ordained to this work, I've said to them that you're going to have to find time in your life, your schedule, in all the clamoring and all the work and all the needs of the people around you, and there are often many, and the various phone calls and texts and email, and all that happens, you've got to find time to come apart and refresh yourself. If you don't do it, it won't happen. People are needy. Even as we'll see in this narrative, the people there, they don't give them much opportunity for rest. But Jesus, he's aware of this as he seeks to give compassion to his disciples. He says to them, he commands to them to rest. The danger of the ministry is, and indeed, and I suspect maybe perhaps Mark used not the typical word here in verse 30 for these men. He calls them apostles in some sense signaling to us that these men set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ will be engaged in the work of the ministry long after uh, he ascends to his father. But the danger of ministry for these men, for any man in the ministry, is to be workaholics. Now some of you might think that I am, and I probably am. I say that and transparency with honesty, but ministers are indeed prone to this. Sometimes they can justify it because of the needs of the people, the needs of the church, and a host of other matters, but the fact remains that ministers are indeed prone to it. You are too, whether you work at Toyota, whether you work at home, whatever it is you're doing, you, you can be, and if you're not careful, prone to becoming such that you're consumed with your everyday work and labor to the point of exhaustion. Maybe this will be a surprise to you. I don't know. I suspect it's probably not going to be. But for some of you, it may be that the most exhausting day of the week for the minister of the gospel is the very day that we call the day of rest. It is exhausting to preach. It is exhausting to expend all this energy and effort, not just in the pulpit, but with others around, uh, in order to do the work called by the Lord Jesus Christ to do. Jesus knows this about his apostles. He recognizes that they need a time to rest. And so he calls them apart for that very purpose. Much the same way, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has called you and I apart to rest. We are not meant to work seven days a week. We are not meant to engage in such labor day after day to the point of exhaustion. God has given us work as a good thing, but he's also given to us the reality of the Lord's day. And a picture, really, I think, of that eternal rest that God has granted to us, promised to us, that he holds out to us as we gather every Lord's Day to rest from our normal labors and recreations and the things that we are allowed to do any other day of the week. But this day, of course, is a day in which God 
Christ graciously gives to us that command, and it is a command, to rest from our normal labors. But it's not just a rest that is absent from the very presence of Christ. Notice how he puts it here in the passage. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And we know as you continue reading here that Jesus is with them. He is present in their midst even as we come apart from the world and we seek to rest on the Lord's Day as we come into this place on the Lord's Day. We come not by ourselves, but we come very much in the presence of this compassionate Savior who gives to His church a time to rest, a time to come apart from those things that can easily burden us and wear us down to a frazzle. I wonder, as you think about just this principle here, that Jesus deliberately used for his people, do you wonder, do you think, and have you thought through uh, the various ways in which you're using the Lord's Day, the, the Christian Sabbath to rest is given by Christ. You see, to avoid that is to become that which Jesus is painfully aware of, that, uh, painfully aware that could happen uh, to his people. This is why he gives us the gift of the Lord's Day, that we might rest with him and in him as we engage in our labors, a labor that they're going to be called to perform here in just a minute. But it's also a rest that has eternal consequences for all of us. You see, this is not the rest we look for. It's good and it's useful and it's helpful as we do it the way in which God has told us and we see the delight of this rest that God has given to us. But it's a picture, isn't it? of that rest that we will eventually enjoy as we come away, not to a desolate place so much, but to the new heavens and the new earth in which we behold the very glory of Christ and we see Him and we have that eternal rest given to us in the very presence of Christ our Savior. And so we must, if we think and we are careful, we must recognize that Even as Jesus is busy in the ministry, in the labor, he's also busy recognizing that his people need a time in which they come apart from their world, the worldly enterprises of which they are called to do, to rest in him. And he's given that to us every Lord's Day. And thus we must take these words and be encouraged by them but also employ them to their maximum effect as granted to us by His Spirit. Well, He doesn't just offer them rest. He teaches them. Jesus is indeed teaching here, not just to the twelve or to the men that have returned to Jesus. We note in verse uh, verse 32, or at the end of verse 31, even though they sought to have a time of rest, many were still clamoring for their attention to the point where they had no leisure even to eat a meal. Talk about busy. My wife often asks me if I've had lunch today, and sometimes I say, no, I, didn't, I forgot to eat. Well, in some sense, that's true. Uh, busy with other things, and it just never occurred to me to have lunch. Well, 
in some sense, this is what's happening here. They are now trying to find a place of rest, can't find that place of rest, no leisure even to eat, and they went away in the boat. They're trying to get away to a desolate place by themselves. And what happens, what tends to happen? Well, in the ministry of Jesus, this is a frequent theme. The people hear of him, they see him, they take note of what he's doing, and now many saw them going and recognized them. And instead of giving them a day off, no, what do they do? They ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So there's a crowd. We know that crowd is the 5,000, 5,000 men. That's to say that I think a conservative estimate be somewhere between 20 and 25,000 people. I can't imagine pastoring a church of 25,000 people. I would need more than one day off a week. Here they are, waiting. And instead of Jesus saying to them, hey, 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 it's my day off, what does he do? He takes advantage of this opportunity that he might show forth his compassion by teaching these people the salient truths of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. Why does he teach? What is his reason for doing this? Well, we note right away from verse 34 that he had compassion on them. He was moved in his heart for their souls. He was moved in his being. Just as we saw last week from Mark's gospel, it was an emotion of human capacity. It was that which you and I should feel for others. It's that which every minister of the gospel should, should have for others. Every elder in the church should have for the people charged to their care. In some sense, Jesus is, is mirroring the very prophecy of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34. Now again, if you are good students of the Bible, you know right away that this chapter in Ezekiel is, uh, well, it's it, at least the first half of the chapter isn't all that, uh, all that encouraging. Ezekiel 34 is a, a prophecy against the, against the shepherds of Israel. And what was that prophecy? It wasn't, it wasn't commending. It was, it was condemning. And why? Well, verse 1 of Ezekiel 34, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Note that. Feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. <coughs> the weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So... Now note these words. They were scattered. Mark picks up that very idea in his narrative here in Mark chapter 6 when he says that Jesus himself had compassion upon the crowd. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The visible church, the covenant people, they're, they're scattered. 
because of the poor teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes around them. Ezekiel goes on. They were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains. On every high hill, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. But then, verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, it's emphasis, no ambiguity here, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And it goes on. What's the point? Here in Mark chapter 6, we are seeing very much the opposite of the evil shepherds of Israel. We are seeing the good shepherd in an act of great compassion, who sees the scattered sheep of his fields doing exactly what Ezekiel said would happen. And it was God who spoke in Ezekiel. And here is the living and true God shepherding the scattered sheep of his church. He's moved with compassion. This word that is here translated as compassion in your ESV Bibles is only used once. It's used only here, and it's, I'm sorry, it's only used of Christ in the entirety of the New Testament. Accident, happenstance, coincidence, there is no coincidence. Rule 39. You have to watch NCIS to understand it. No coincidence here. This word was uniquely used by the Spirit that he might cast light upon the heart of Jesus Christ for scattered people. To have pity and feel sorry, to be emotionally moved in the very bowels of one's heart, as one commentator explains it. So what does he teach? We know what motivates it. What, what should motivate every minister of the gospel as they preach and they teach? A heart for the people. To give to them as much of the Bible and the Word of God as they can consume for the saving of their souls, that they might eat and be satisfied. So what does he teach? Well, other accounts of this very event, it's, it's given to us in all the synoptic Gospels, this very miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, he teaches on the kingdom of God. This is why the Savior came, to, to preach repentance in his Father's kingdom, to persuade people to give up their own life 
as such that profits nothing, but instead to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He preaches the purpose of his coming. He came to offer his life a ransom for sinners. He came to be the bleeding sacrifice for the sins of his people. Mark doesn't tell us what he preached on, but I think we can, by good and necessary consequence, conclude by the words of Jesus himself that he came to speak, to preach his Father's kingdom. And so, undoubtedly, he is there in a megachurch environment, preaching the very kingdom of God. Perhaps as he did later in John's gospel, as he preached that he was indeed the very bread of life come down from heaven. It is likely, in fact, that a reference was made even to that in some sense because of the very miracle itself which centers around what? Bread. It's hard to not see the connection between Jesus, the bread of life, in the flesh, God himself, And the bread that we consume, that we hold, and that we taste and smell and see. It's all here as he is preaching that not the bread that they will eventually consume, but he alone is that which will only satisfy the souls of weary people. And so the impetus for us, even today, as we consider this this miracle, these events, and we recognize that not only does Jesus and his compassion give to us a day of rest and, and in his presence, but that as we're in his presence, we are being taught. We are being, we are being fed the bread of life, the very word of his Father, our Father's words to us that we might truly be satisfied, not with bread that will eventually need to be replaced but a bread that will never run out, a well that is so deep it will never run dry. And so we come, don't we? Don't we come every Lord's Day to attend to this teaching, to hear from Christ. There's one church I've preached in before. They have a a little plaque on their pulpit. It's a good reminder that, sir, we would see Jesus. We would hear from him. As the word of God is read, and especially as it is proclaimed every Lord's Day. Thus we prepare, even as Jesus prepared these people by orderly sitting them in groups. He was a good Presbyterian. Do all things decently and in order. Now I say that with tongue in cheek, yes, of course, but... He's orderly about this. The people are prepared to hear from him and to be fed by him. Much the same way we too should order our lives, knowing that we're not coming to hear Pastor Bill so much. Yes, you hear me. But you're coming as these people came to hear from Christ. And notice how they came and how they prepared to come. They didn't saunter into the sanctuary. They didn't just meander about till till they arrived there. Mark tells us they ran there on foot to hear from Christ. How often these kinds of narratives, if we think deeply about them, 
put us to shame in some sense, that we don't have that same zeal to come and hear from Christ. And so we must, we must do so. We must attend to his teaching. Our catechisms teach us as much to prepare for the preaching of God's word, to meditate on it after we hear it, to talk about it in our homes, in our cars on the way home, and in our family worship in the afternoons, to, to cement the, the, the things that were said in the sermons, and to apply those things that we hear in our, to our ordinary lives as we are as the benediction is pronounced and we're sent out into the world to go do what you've heard from not Pastor Bill, but from Christ himself as he teaches his people, as he seeks to be the faithful shepherd of scattered sheep in his church. Imagine if you were invited to someone's home for a meal. I think I've used this illustration before, but I think it's appropriate. But imagine if you were invited to someone's home for a meal, and, and the host of that meal was so excited about having you there. And they labored all day to make the, the silverware just sparkle, and the plates are clean and not subject to inspection like my father would do often after we washed the dishes. But they're just pristine and the meal is just fantastic, and this labor went into it, a labor of love. And imagine how the host might feel if you come to that meal and you don't care. You turn your nose up at it. You look at it like it doesn't matter. These people consumed that which Jesus offers them. They were hungry for getting to that part. But they were hungry for something much greater than what their bellies needed. They were hungry for the word of the truth. Jesus now, ministering to them, teaches them. He feeds their souls with the gospel of hope. But he doesn't do only that, does he? The quintessential elder of the New Testament is Jesus Christ. In his office as elder, he teaches and preaches the word of God. But he doesn't stop there. He's also the quintessential deacon of the church as well. He knows that you and I are body and soul, and He feeds us real food. We pray that every Lord's Day as we ask for the Lord to give to us our daily bread. We know that that means grant to us the things that we need. And Jesus knows that these people need. He has a recognition first of it. He recognizes it. He notices it there in verse 38 or verse 35, and when it grew late, you think my sermons are long. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. In other words, be done with these people. These disciples, you know, they're still learning like you are and like I am. They're learning. Jesus doesn't buy into this. He says to them, verse 37, you give them something to eat. Jesus recognized that the disciples weren't wrong. It is late. Undoubtedly, they're hungry. They've probably missed a meal or two. He says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. Christ recognizes their need. He takes notice of the crowd. 
He sees their physical need. So often we're like that, aren't we? Pastors, elders sometimes can be very short-sighted in not recognizing the physical needs of the people. The Savior was not. Here he sees it as that quintessential deacon. He, he serves in that capacity by recognizing that we're body and soul. He's accomplished one. Now he's going to accomplish the other. He sees that need, and so often we do miss those needs of others, mainly because we're not paying attention, mainly because we're not asking the right questions or even asking any questions. So often we can miss those needs if we're not careful. We become so self-absorbed in our lives. And, and grant you, I know we are all very busy people, living in our own world, oblivious to the hurts and needs of others. But Jesus himself is teaching the disciples here that there's no true joy, really. You hard-headed disciples, there's no true joy. A lesson they will continue to learn, but there's no true joy until you learn to serve. You disciples, look, life's not all about you. What about the needs of these 25,000 people? What are you going to do for them? I know that we have talked often. I have, maybe I have talked often, maybe to the point of distraction, I don't know. But I have encouraged often that we engage in acts of hospitality as a church. And I am encouraged by things, the reports I hear, and I do hear things, and, and it's encouraging to see that we're seeking to do that hospitable act that Jesus here is about to do for these people. Christ was tired. His disciples were undoubtedly tired. Christ knew that, but he takes the opportunity to minister to the needs of others, and thus he orders his disciples to feed them in the face of an impossible task. Here's the crux of the, of the miracle. What do you want us to feed them with? We don't have anything. It's like someone's showing up at my door at the end of the week when food is kind of running dry, and it's like, I don't have much for you. I mean, a couple crackers. Okay, it's not that bad. They don't have much. You give them something to eat, he says. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They didn't even have 200 denarii, by the way. You want us to do this? Why? Let them go fend for themselves. But remember, Jesus and his compassion, uh, he knows their needs. And so he says to them, how many loaves do you have? You must have something. Of course, he knows as the Son of God, he orders his disciples to feed them in the face of an impossible task from nothing. From nothing. Five loaves and two fish are not going to accomplish the job. We know what happens, we know the miracle. He fulfills that need. He performs this tremendous miracle in thus feeding the people. But we would miss some of the salient principal truths under, undergirding the, this entire interchange between he and his disciples as he teaches you and me that, that the disciples are to feed the people. Not him so much. He does, of course, but he does it through means. He does it through the means that he's employing here. 
He commands the people to sit down. They sat down in group and taken the five loaves. He looked up to heaven. He blessed them. We know this part of the story. And in one account, he orders the disciples to disperse that which he has just multiplied tremendously. He teaches us to feed the people. Ministers and elders must feed the people. Brothers, that's your job. That's your calling. You're not called to change light bulbs. You're not called to vacuum the church. You're not, you're not called to... God, Christ has given somebody, another group of men to be worry about that. You're called to feed the people, though. It's your responsibility is given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Not you're just like the old shepherds, the blind guides of Israel. You're the Ezekiel 34 bunch. No, no, we don't do that. One of the qualifications of an elder in the church is that he is hospitable. Another thing, everybody, by the way, is called to do that. But elders in particular are called to be hospitable. The word is where the word that is there used is that is that word we get hospital from, where to minister the physical needs and attend to the physical needs of the church in that capacity. When it doesn't happen, God's people cannot and should not blame the culture. And it's not a cultural problem, frankly. When we don't do these things, it's not a cultural problem, it's just a sin problem. We need to heed the voice of the shepherd. We need to see not only the spiritual needs of the church, but the physical needs as well. In Ezekiel 34 and verse 23, we note there the, the, the underscoring or the highlighting of this one shepherd who will feed the people and die for the people. But his feeding of his people continues today. How? How does that happen? Through the life of the church. More to the point, through the ministry of the diaconate, the deacons in the church to minister to the physical needs of the people. And the elders on the other side to minister primarily to the spiritual needs of the people. Jesus is teaching these apostles the importance of treating and ministering to men and women, boys and girls, as full people. Not half people. Not just souls, but bodies as well. I don't know if you know this, and maybe you're aware of this, for those of you who struggle with illness or chronic pain or whatever it may be, but you, you would have to say, and, and I would concur, that when you're suffering physically in some capacity, it affects you spiritually. The same is true the other way around. When you're suffering spiritually, it can affect your body. God made us both. Spiritually fed, physically fed, through this tremendous work and miracle that Jesus gives to gives to us these, this group, this crowd, and thus teaching his apostles and us today the importance of ministering to both things. But also third, not only are those things true, we also can learn indeed that the task of feeding God's people is sometimes awfully impossible. And it is. Left to yourself. Paul says as much, who is sufficient for these things? Who? You show me one minister, one elder who says they're sufficient for this, and I will show you an elder that should quit. They are not sufficient. But the Holy Spirit is. Who is it? By what power did Jesus take these loaves and multiply them in such a way that there was leftover? Well, he was God. Yes, I know, that's the classic answer. But he did everything under the power 
of that double portion, that full measure of the Spirit that he received. You want to minister to the people? You need the Spirit. You want to serve the people? You need the Spirit. Left to yourself, you won't do any of it. You want to see results from that ministry? You need the Spirit. No Spirit, no fruit. No Spirit, no profit. No Spirit, you labor in vain. And Jesus, dependent upon the Holy Spirit here, prays. He looks up to heaven. He said a blessing. He broke the loaves. He gave them to his disciples. Why? To set before the people. They're involved. Divided the two fish among them all. They all ate. A group of men and women, boys and girls, they ate and were satisfied. First, seconds, thirds, fourths, however many they wanted. A full bounty was placed before these people. The miracle is performed, and it's hard not to see the very illusion that Jesus here performs in that very event that happened all the way back in Exodus 16, in which the people are suffering, they're languishing physically, they're thirsty, they're hungry. And what does God do for them? He gives to them precisely what they need. He feeds them the bread of heaven that came down, that we know it as manna. The very bread of life is Christ. He feeds us with Him. He gives to us our daily bread. He gives to us the needs that we have as we wander in the wilderness, as we are as pilgrims of God's church. (coughs) We are being fed daily. Not only the Word of God, but the very, bread of, the very bread that we need to sustain our souls, our bodies. It is through His teaching and feeding in this very event that He shows that He is not like those evil shepherds of Israel. But His heart hurts and is broken. And it's full of compassion for the people. And so Mark tells us they were, they were satisfied. And we too need to come to that place where we are satisfied with that which Christ gives to us. We're satisfied with His Word as it's proclaimed and so far as it's faithful to the Scriptures. We're satisfied with the daily bread that He grants to us and we learn to be content with what He's given us. We know it all came from His hand. And we rest comfortably in his provision. This is what he gives to us in the church today. No, we're not sitting on a mountain. No, we're not sitting in the grass. No, we're not sitting amongst 12,000 people, 25,000 people. But we are sitting in the presence of Christ who feeds the church. His word. He feeds the church that bread that we will enjoy in a moment. He feeds to us our daily bread to sustain us until that time in which we approach Him in that eternal rest. Christ is indeed the shepherd of Israel. He is the true shepherd of Israel. He leads and He guides and gives rest and He teaches and He feeds and gives you your daily bread. He does this by providing for your physical needs, but He also does it by providing for your spiritual needs. How do we respond? Are we responding like these people? 
Are we satisfied? Not satisfied like we just had enough. No, no. There's a fullness of the term. Satisfied. Our souls are at rest. We've enjoyed the presence of Christ and His teaching. How do we respond? Well, first we should respond with thankful hearts. For a true teacher, that is Christ, as opposed to the false teachers that the people in His day were enduring. We should be thankful for men called of Christ to the office of teacher who faithfully provides meals for His people. Second, we should have prayerful hearts. The shepherd of Christ has left his church in the care of ministers who, who, who minister in his name. They are not infallible shepherds. Jesus is. I am not. I don't think I need to tell you that. Thus, you need to pray for the ministry of the Word of God in this church. You need to be praying for the elders as they strive to watch over your souls as men who will give an account for them someday. And third, not only thankful hearts, but prayerful hearts, but willing hearts to live in obedience to what is instructed insofar as it's faithful to the Word of God. This instruction comes through men who are ordained to that labor. They're ministering in their own name, at least they shouldn't be, They are ministering in the name of the Good Shepherd who gave his life for you. I didn't give my life for you and never will, and I won't. I can't, not in that sense anyway. To reject them and refuse to hear is to refuse the compassionate Savior. So he gives an abundance to his church. His teaching and his feeding, it continues today through the ordinary means. Simple means of grace. We only need to take advantage of them. We must lay hold of them. See the bounty they offer to us to eat and be satisfied with what Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, gives to his church. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and all that this miracle does indeed teach us about your Son and his care for us, body and soul. May we indeed lay hold of these things in newness today. May we seize them with zeal. And may we be reminded that we are always in his presence. And may we live that way all of our days, enjoying indeed the very bounty he offers us. May we, like the people of old, eat and be satisfied with that which our Savior has given us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.